How's it going, guys? It's been another, like, it's been a bit of a break again. We, it's summer and we're all busy. Yeah. And we're moving around and Alvaro's just going to weddings right and left. And yeah. And I'm being lazy with the editing. It's just this, uh, this summer weather is crazy. And also it's a civic holiday today for us, Josh oh, and I. Oh yeah. I don't actually know what that means. Oh, Canada. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, we, we do have the day off for some reason. So, you know, I'm not gonna. Right. We don't get paid for it, but off we go. In my defense, the entire month of August is thought of as a civic holiday in Spain. So that works all right. <laughs> all right then that's a good deal so we um we got some uh some email actually um a couple of weeks ago i feel a little bad about just getting to this now but again we've been lazy and delayed so forgive us but we have listener mail um this is my favorite kind of of uh, follow-up to uh to deal with so um david sent us um a lovely email with a couple of questions that i thought we'd uh, we'd go over here um, some of it we've covered in previous shows sort of tangentially um, or in more depth, but I, I figured we could circle back to our answers. So um, his first question is, do you feel that Micro Four Thirds has a future? Some feel it's dead in view of larger sensors and the inability to improve IQ much which uh, with such a small sensor. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, a bit of a loaded question. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but a very interesting one, too. Yeah, I mean, we, we sort of chatted about it on one of our earliest episodes, but now that we've uh, we've had some more time and we've kind of gotten closer to seeing what, um, what the next generation of Micro Four Thirds stuff is going to bring, um, do you guys have new perspectives on this? I mean, for context, all of us used to shoot um, pretty much exclusively Olympus cameras for a while um, before transitioning to whatever our new systems are, but... Um, nowadays we, um, we do not shoot micro four thirds, um, at least not for the most part. I mean, we, um, we being me at the agency still use micro four thirds for the video side of things, uh, with a Panasonic GH4, but the photography end is no longer micro four thirds. So how do you guys feel about the system now that we've sort of been away from it for a while and it hasn't necessarily taken great strides in that interval? Right, I think timing is is very interesting here because it's just a couple months now, or, or even less, to Photokina, where there's uh, there's huge expectations uh, that we're going to see the next flagship from Olympus. Yep, uh, and and that's going to be very very important for the system's future, I would say. Uh, and and the thing is that we've been now for the past couple months. Sony has released a bunch of lenses. Fuji has released a new camera. Uh, it seems like everybody else is announcing stuff all the time, but Olympus and Panasonic have been relatively quiet uh, over the past few months, definitely. Yep. Uh, ever, ever since the Pen F was announced, basically. And that was never intended to be a flagship camera, really. It's more of a consumer, uh, high-end consumer product uh, in 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 my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. So it's it's going to be very interesting to see what they what they unveil if they unveil anything because uh let's not forget that they may not. Uh and I would say that if they don't bring significant improvements uh in the next model they're going to be in in a bit of a in a bit of a pickle because it's it's true we're starting to see everybody else uh, increasing resolution for one, and and bringing more advanced features to their cameras. And uh, while the EM1 
is a fantastic body, it's still it, it's already beginning to feel a little bit outdated. So I am a bit worried about that, definitely. Hmm. I you know what I'm going to disagree with you just a for the sake of conversation, and I'm going to go on a gut feeling. I don't have any stats or info to throw in your face or anything like that, but um, I. I'm just not sure if we're going to, it's not like micro four thirds is going to come to some sort of death here. No. You know, I look over, I still have my EM five Mark two. I still have a hard time, like ever wanting to part with it. And I'm afraid that maybe the three of us are in a little bit of a, in a, maybe an echo chamber where we're not, there's just, there's too many people who want something slightly better than their iPhone. And they're just not going to spend the big money on, on a Sony camera or even Fuji because Fuji cameras are actually, that's a, that's a bad example. Maybe we'll have to cut this part out because Fuji's prices are kind of, they're closer to Olympus's for sure. Um, but I, I don't know the, the size, like the second question that David brought up here, which we'll talk about here in a second, like he bought these cameras because of a trap for a travel purpose because they're small and lighter and for travel. And, you know, even looking at their current prices, like you, like Olympus, hey, here's a little plug. Like there's a bunch of deals on Olympus lenses right now and you can get a portrait lens for $300. Like $300. Which portrait lens is that? Your beloved 45 millimeter. Oh, never heard of it. Oh, really? <laughs> so like we're, we're talking about a, a camera system here that you can improve on your iPhone photography for, you know, with an EM 10, let's say they come up with a Mark three, which is only like five or $600, like for less than a thousand bucks with less than the price of, of even a mid range Sony lens, you can buy into a system and have a drastic improvement to your photography. I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's going to change in the midterm, no matter what happens in, in September. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fair point. The, the concern that I feel and that I think, um, David is, is hinting at is not so much that, um, micro four thirds will fail as a system overall, but that it will fail as a system for professionals, because that's really the, um, that's what's suffering here um, in comparison to the competition. Hmm. I didn't read the se- the question that way. I guess I like I don't see the professional part, but I would agree if, if on the professional end of things. I don't know why a professional ph- photographer would ever use an Olympus camera unless they're travel photographers. There, I, there, I would say. Well, it's not even it's not just travel. It's it's also something like wildlife, right? I mean, there are advantages to a smaller sensor, and let's not forget that setting aside all of the you know lower cost of entry and and very affordable lenses and all that um the ergonomics of olympus's cameras the omd line is almost without peer in the rest of the industry i mean they're such comfortable cameras to work with they're so customizable they're so uh capable within their limitations and that's something that um is very valuable to some professionals i mean for them that might be uh, enough of a of a benefit to sway them over raw um, specs, especially if they're not doing, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of printing or they don't really need the higher resolutions for whatever work they're doing. Now, yes, of course, I do hope that the next generation sensor will bring um, micro four thirds up to 24 megapixels or so, just because I I feel like that's a comfortable um, and and practical compromise between extreme resolution and, uh, you know, just not much better than your smartphone. Um, so, so I am hoping to see that, but I also don't, um, 
I don't know. It, it feels to me like the people who are buying into the micro four thirds system are doing so not because they're after um, like top shelf technical specs. Right. Yes. Right. But that's just it. To me, to me, the problem is that the system is sort of being squeezed from both ends because at the lower end, uh, well, the smartphones are obviously a huge competitor, but at, at the lower end, you have systems and, and uh, cameras from Fuji that are price-wise uh, price very similar to most Olympus cameras. Yeah. And yes, they are not the latest and greatest models, but they work extremely well. Uh, and so there's that competition going on there. And then at the higher end, IQ just isn't comparable. So, of course, there are, there are very specific segments like wildlife that, that you just mentioned, where an Olympus camera makes it makes a lot of sense because you can get a huge telephoto and still have a, a nice, uh, light, small camera. That's something that many people will appreciate, of course. But the the problem that I see is that the the circle, the Venn diagram, uh, on which Olympus customers are in the in the center, is getting smaller and smaller every day, and I don't see that changing. So. People will keep buying Micro Four Thirds cameras and Olympus and Panasonic cameras, but how many people will choose that because it is absolutely the best possible choice for them? I, I think that number is shrinking over time, and I don't see them turning that around necessarily. I hope they do, definitely, because I love my, my Olympus camera, and I want to see them thrive because more competition is better for everybody. But like you said, uh, ergonomics, they are fantastic, but that's something that any competitor can copy, whereas sensor-specific uh, problems that Micro Four Thirds has, those are harder to solve, in my opinion. You know, one thing when we have these conversations is we never really talk about like point and shoots with even smaller sensors. And I wonder if maybe, maybe in the future Micro Four Thirds will kind of be relegated to maybe that part of the conversation. Do you know what I mean? Where like point and shoots are still really good for for a whole pile of people. Yeah, that would make me very sad because I think they deserve a higher place, definitely. Yeah, but, uh, right. I just wonder if maybe they've tried to stick their toe into the wrong part of the lake, so to say, and, and you know, they're not set for right. to play with, with that segment. But anyway, I, all I know is I have a hard time ever thinking about selling my EM5 Mark II. I, in fact, I'm more cur uh, currently I'm researching other lenses I'd like to buy for it. So I'm going the other way, oddly. <laughs> right. I think that the something that I would uh, that, that always confuses me is that for for the past couple of years, I mean, it's hard. I'm terrible at this because I'm speaking from memory. I always get things mixed up. But it's like we've been spoiled by companies like Sony and Fuji that release new products a lot more frequently. And for a while there, Olympus seemed like they were doing that because they, in a, in a relatively short period, they released the EM10, then the EM1, then the EM10 Mark II, then the EM5 Mark II. So it was like they, they hit a, a rhythm that was very, it looked like it was very healthy. But then you read those uh, press releases and you see that they actually lost money or something like that. And you wonder if that was a smart choice or, or, or not. And it's, it's a very complicated issue, definitely, but I can't help but feel the picture must not be too bright because it's been certainly over a year and 
what have they released? One lens, maybe? Is that it? Like the new Panasonic yeah, wide? Yeah, a lot of rumors this morning. But. Yeah, but but it's been... Right, but I, I'm hesitant to blame them for that. I mean, just, just because Sony sets a very, very aggressive pace for expanding their lineup doesn't mean that every other company has to do that. And yes, of course, it looks better and it's easier to say, oh, that company is clearly healthy and doing well because it's releasing new lenses and it's releasing new camera bodies. But... Um, I, I'm not willing to say that the way Olympus is doing things, which is to release a bunch of things and then have a big break, um, you know, as they're developing the next generation, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and there's probably internal reasons for why they do it that way rather than staggering things. Um, right. You know, I mean, who, who knows what what goes on behind the scenes. But um, fundamentally, I think that what, what makes me optimistic about Micro Four Thirds as a system is that when I travel or when I um, just look around me, uh, walking around in my day-to-day life, if I see people with cameras, those cameras are either Canon and Nikon entry-level DSLRs or they're Olympus cameras. Um, the the vast majority of cameras that I see out in the wild are you know, the, the entry-level Canons and uh, and Olympus cameras. That's true. And that's a good sign. Yeah. I mean, I don't see I don't see Fujis. I don't really see Sony A7 series. I see the A6 uh, A6000. Um, but it, there there is a sizable market there. And yes, maybe the the market does not include uh, the vast majority of pros. Um, but it's still a big market. There's still a lot of people for whom the you know constellation of size, ergonomics, etc. Uh, that Olympus and Panasonic are presenting is still the best fit for them, and that's valuable. I mean, that might be uh, that might be all they need. And uh, while for us, you know, it's it's almost like we want them to recapture the pro market. We we want to see them succeed there as well. We want to see them um, provide active competition to the Sony A7s and the Fuji XT2s of the world. Uh, that might not actually be the smartest business decision for. Olympus. So right. I, I don't know. I mean, right. That's what I was going to say. I, I I think that's what they've been pursuing lately. They've been trying to compete at the high end, releasing these pro lenses. And I think that's a mistake. I think their niche should be the consumer who wants something light to travel or who wants to get into photography. But I think competing at the higher end is a mistake because these limitations that David, uh, David was talking about in his question that's where they are most evident and and there's just no way around it. So of course there's a place for Olympus cameras and Panasonic cameras in the market. I just don't think the higher end of the market is, is that place. And it seems to fly in the face of what the company has been doing lately, both Panasonic and Olympus, by the way, because they've been concentrating their efforts on releasing these uh, like fancy pieces of glass that of course, they're always nice to have, but I'm not sure it's the right, it's what the system needs at this point. Right. So, David, I mean, we, we've sort of answered your question to the best of our abilities right now, but it's a, it's a topic that is important to us. And I think we will probably be circling back to it after Photokina, assuming we find out um, yep. you know, more information about what's actually um, coming out in the Micro Four Thirds ecosystem at that point, um, because I, I feel like that's going to tell us um, a lot more clearly about what Olympus and Panasonic uh, are setting their sights on over the next couple of years. So we'll get back to you. Right. Um, 
The second question that David asked is kind of a parallel one. He he says, I'm also curious what you each consider your maximum acceptable ISO speed. I know it varies by camera, subject, and taste, but I'm still curious, especially for non-full-frame cameras. I just bought a Panasonic GX85 and much prefer to keep it under 1600. I know I can remove noise in Lightroom, but I like to start with a good image out of the camera. I chose Micro Four Thirds because the cameras and lenses are smaller, especially for travel. So Josh, that's what you were, um, yeah, you know. Foreshadowing, what can I say? Built into the show. Exactly. And that's the segment That's the segment that that uh, Olympus, I think, is, is targeting very well right now. But um, the ISO speed is a, a sort of, revealing question because that is um that that is where smaller sensors tend to fall apart is when you start pushing the iso levels um higher so i don't know about you guys i pretty much capped my iso at 3200 on the um on this current generation of of olympus sensors that's about as high as i was comfortably pushing it um in camera sometimes i pushed to 6400 but i was never happy with the results yeah same here 32 and and i was uh, skeptical, and I was always trying to avoid going to 3200 if at all possible. But that's the 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 limit for me as well. That being said, if I have to choose between not taking a picture or taking it with a higher ISO, I will definitely take it with a higher ISO and see what happens. But if I can if I can at all avoid it, yeah, mm. then yeah, absolutely. Oh, of course, yeah. I, I'm allergic to noise, so uh, self-diagnosed, of course, <laughs> but. Um, I don't go anywhere. I try to stay below a thousand on every camera. I don't know, just me. I look at the photo on in Lightroom on the on the iMac, and I, I just want to like barf if it's above like sixteen hundred is far and away the highest I would ever ever go. That's me. Even even with full frame, like on a Sony camera, I can't stand anything higher right. than that. Well, there you go. So we have we're we're on different sides of the spectrum there, but yeah, um, and it depends on on your post processing, of course, because I find that. Black and white images are a little more permissive with noise. You can get away with having a little higher ISO if you think you're yeah, going to process that as a black and white picture. So that's also something to keep in mind. Yeah. Or you know, you could just add digital, uh, digital. What's it called? Like a film. Yeah. Film grain type grain. Yeah. There we go. That's a, yeah, film grain. <laughs> and then you just totally cheat, <laughs> like me. <laughs> hey, it's not cheating. Uh, no, it isn't cheating. I, I kind of like it, especially for black and white. I find myself uh, trying to uh, play with the grain, especially if, uh, um, I don't know if you guys have, have tried, um, DxO makes a, an app called Film Pack that has, it lets you actually sort of uh, mix and match like grain from one film stock with the color profile of another um, and control intensity and stuff like that. It's a very fun way to experiment. And uh, I find that their grain profiles are very, very, um, very flattering, especially on black and white images, like you were saying. There's just adding a little bit of, of additional grain digitally um, just does something very appealing to the aesthetic of, uh, of a black and white image. We'll need to talk about black and white imagery eventually because I, uh, I, I just have no... I, I hate I hate black and white images. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's that's a big topic because you're not alone. You're not alone there. Um, speaking of strange things, uh, I don't know. You guys, are you referring to me as strange? <laughs> anyway, sorry. That was so subtle though. Um, so we 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 came across this this piece of news, and Alvaro's first reaction was to ask me if it was April first, but it is not. Um, I'm still not convinced. By the way, yeah, it's it's okay. So Adobe has released um, Lightroom for the Apple TV. Here's where we should insert the, the cricket's chirping noise or something like that. 
Yeah, seriously. Um, <laughs> this is something that I did not see coming at all. I, I didn't think that this was um, a gap in the market, but I don't think it's a terrible idea. Um, you know, especially seeing how they've how they've implemented it. Um, there, there's something to be said for completing the picture of um, uh, of sharing because that's ultimately what this is about. And when you think about it from Adobe's perspective, they're trying to position Lightroom as uh, the beginning and the end of your photo management cycle. So you're using it to do your organizing, you're doing your edits in Lightroom. So why not also do your sharing in Lightroom? Right. And wouldn't it be great if instead of even having to export it from Lightroom, you could just show it to people on your Apple TV natively and wouldn't that be great? And I, I tend to agree with them. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I know that um, a lot of the times when I'm showing photos to family, it's very convenient to do so on an Apple TV. You know, typically it's, it's you know, exporting the photos and then airplaying them. Uh, but if I could avoid that entire step and just show them the Lightroom catalog directly, that would be handy. And so, you know, now suddenly we can do that. Do you have really like a really well color calibrated TV? I don't know about really well color calibrated, <laughs> but it's certainly a very, uh, you know, it, it makes them look flattering and not okay. like alien landscapes. So right. it's because I like when I put my photos on my television and I, I mean, I, I look over at my TV and I'm not like disappointed by it, but I just find that the photos are always they look like blech. yeah. That's what you know, I was gonna say. I don't. I don't think, know if you can if that's even a word. Blech. I don't think a TV, <laughs> even a modern high definition TV, is the ideal device on which to look at pictures. So that makes me think that this is just you know intended for casual use, and that's great. That's that's awesome. It's well, it's better if yeah. this exists than if than if it doesn't. Definitely an argument there. Well, just okay, so here I'm gonna throw this out there. So like, if you're gonna pay for Lightroom on your Mac to edit things. You got to pay for it on a monthly basis, right. right? 10 bucks every single month. And like that right there is a big barrier to entry for mo many people. So most people are just going to gravitate to photos or whatever the Windows equivalent is. So like right off the hop, there's a big gap between who's paying for Lightroom and who's not. Agreed. And so the person who's paying for it to me, like, would be it's more likely that they don't want to show their photos on a tele television and would rather show it on, like, even my 12 inch MacBook. I would prefer to show my photos on that, and that's what I show my family. Like, when I show my photos off, I show them with the MacBook, not the TV. So, anyway, that that's where my where the disconnect comes here for me is the group of people who are paying for Lightroom. Like, yep, I agree. I, I don't know why they would ever use their television. I agree absolutely. I think I think you guys have your geek glasses on here. <laughs> oh, I have a question though, and this is this is just going to to show you the extent to which I don't know Lightroom very very well. Do they have any sort of web platform where you can take a look at your collections and stuff? Like when you sync with Lightroom Mobile, do they live in the cloud somewhere? And is there a website where you can go look at those pictures? Yes, and yes, and in fact, you can also send. Uh, clients links to a particular thing and they can uh, favorite and comment on images from that web view and that all syncs back into Lightroom for you. Right, because I wasn't aware of that and it, it, it was making my head hurt how they would bother making an app for the Apple TV before releasing that. So yeah, yeah, no, that that exists and it works and it works. Um, so this is really this is an 100% consumer facing thing, and I think that the the fundamental point is that the kinds of people who are typically enjoying photos, like they're sharing vacation photos, the comments are probably not going to be ah oh, man, the color calibration is so off on this television. 
You know, like that's those are not the people. No, no, they're just going to say that the picture looks like crap. Yeah, but that's a different <laughs> exactly. that's a different conversation. Um, I do like I hear I hear what you're saying, Josh. About you know if you're if you're paying for a Lightroom subscription, theoretically you're the kind of person for whom this stuff matters. Um, however. I have to say that I don't know, um, like there are a lot of people who own Lightroom or subscribe to Lightroom in some fashion, and they have no idea about color profiles. They have no idea about um, color calibrated screens. Right. Like that's that's a whole, that's an entirely alien well, even concept. I don't, but all you have to do is look at the picture and go, ugh. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, televisions are awful for color, like awful. It's not just like, you know, a little bit bad. It's like awful. It depends on your television. Like really, my television is not awful. It's not accurate, but it doesn't look bad. Then clearly mine is a piece of junk. I thought I spent a lot of money on my TV. Well, you, we all spend a lot of money on the TV. And then two years later, it's, you know, <laughs> like with any other technology. No, but essentially, no, no matter what TV you own, uh, I guess the best case scenario is that you own one of these fancy 4K ones that, that have been hitting the market as of late. If you own one of those, then at least it's sharper. It might make more sense. Yeah, at least it's sharper. But if if you own a regular full HD 1080p TV, then basically you're looking at a very very downsized version of your picture. So, how much detail is going to be available for viewing there? I'm I'm not sure. They do mention in the blog post that they have this handy zoom feature, so that you can enlarge uh, whatever area of the image you want to see the full detail on there. And I guess that's kind of a workaround uh, around that limitation. But at the end of the day, you're you're looking at something that is packing at least 16, more likely 24 or over megapixels of detail, and you're shrinking that to 1080p. So that's right off the bat, that's not optimal and it can't be. Yeah, but again, this is not you're not showing this to gallery managers. You're you're showing this to family members who don't care about that. They're looking to see about your vacation and they want to see it on the biggest screen possible because it's a cinematic experience. And the fact that you can zoom around and all that stuff is is great. I mean, it's this is a 100% consumer focused thing and I think while it's surprising and and you know arguably adobe had other things within the lightroom ecosystem that it could have been working on instead um there's nothing wrong with releasing something like this i do think that it completes the picture um especially for people who are uh because okay i'm i'm thinking of the folks who use lightroom instead of photos because they like um the additional uh, cataloging features and or the slightly more in-depth editing features. And there are people who who appreciate that but aren't necessarily obsessive about um, resolution or about color accuracy right. or about that. You know, they, they don't necessarily have an awareness of that, but they do want to edit their photos in a more dedicated way. For them, now they no longer have to export to share, basically. That's that's the big win. Instead of having to... Well, that's assuming, that's assuming you, you use the syncing feature, which I don't. I only use Lightroom on the Mac and I don't sync my collections anywhere. So Right, but this is a this is Adobe being a salesperson, right? right? They want you to use the sync feature because the sync feature is, is why you keep paying for Lightroom. Of course. And this is their this is their way of making Lightroom overall more competitive with iCloud photos. To be perfectly honest, uh, I've always been a bit of a skeptic, so be warned. I think this just this was one of those decisions that got pitched to 
management or for whatever reason. And the cost of doing it was so low because I'm betting they reused a ton of code from the iOS app. So oh, yeah. if yeah. I put my developer hat on, I say, boss, I can work on this for two weeks and release it. Go ahead. And that's just it. That's yeah. it. It's, it's true. Yeah. It's better if this exists than if it doesn't. Yeah. And if the cost of doing it was low, go ahead. But I, I, I don't think they gave it much thought, really, or, or that they're going to be super uh, supportive of it. But that's the beauty of it. They don't actually have to do very much to it. It's a very simple thing. All it has to do is show photos. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's not that much that you want it to do in addition to that. It's not like you're going to want to edit on your Apple TV or stuff like that. So, you know, they've built something that that adds a little bit of value to the ecosystem. It was unexpected. Um, but for enough people, I think it's going to be a meaningful improvement. So I'm, you know, thumbs up for me. It's strange. Um, I've played with it. it. It is actually a very good experience. I don't know... Um, how much use I'm going to get out of it personally, but I guarantee that it's going to be a value add for some people out there. So, you know, there you go. Kudos to Adobe for thinking outside the box. Yeah, really. And it's very telling that they're just throwing in there, uh, throwing it in with the subscription. Like it's not a separate product. You can't pay for it. You just get it if you pay for yep. the, if you're already paying. So that's yep. that right there tells you what their goal for, for this new app is. And it's reasonable. Yeah, no kidding. I, I, after thinking about it and getting over the initial shock, I think it, it does make sense. So kudos yeah. for them, yeah. On the total opposite side of the spectrum, companies doing things that don't make sense. Um, <laughs> our final piece of news for this week was um, Visco, makers of Visco Cam and the film profiles that uh, so many of us know and love. Um, they recently announced that they are discontinuing their sync service. Um, so people who've used the ViscoCam app will know that um, the, the workflow is that you import photos from your camera roll into the app, and then um, you can make your edits, and the edits, along with all their history, sync to Visco's cloud. And the advantage is that when you then open um, the app on your iPad or on you know a, a secondary device, um, all of your files, uh, including all of their edit history and all of that, are available for you, and all of the changes sync pretty quickly. And uh, you know, it's just a generally good and smart way of working that everyone loves. Um, and it's going away for no discernible reason. <laughs> it's probably the opposite of the the story with Lightroom. Like here it's we have a case where it didn't make sense from a cost standpoint i think yeah i'm i'm sure it was way too expensive for them especially given the the increasing popularity of of visco as an app i think they were just seeing that they were hemorrhaging money keeping that sync service right. alive and and people forget that sync services are expensive to run like it they require yeah. a ton of server uh, and computational power and that is expensive like really expensive yeah. and unless you rely on somebody else's infrastructure like apple with icloud for example to do the heavy lifting for you, then you're gonna you're gonna be spending a lot of money every month to just to keep the lights on. Which brings me to my main frustration with this, because I would not have been upset by this news if they'd said, "Guys, sorry, it's too expensive. We're discontinuing our own sync service because Apple's iCloud Photos now does what we want that to do. So instead, we're transitioning to using that as the back end and we're introducing a photos extension so that you can edit and you know save history and work like every other you know good photo editing app in the iOS ecosystem does. But they're not doing that. That would be a very interesting story to figure out because they probably tried 
I mean, it only makes sense to think that. And iCloud syncing does have a certain amount of limitations that things that Apple just doesn't allow you to do. And maybe they maybe they found that they couldn't do what they wanted to uh, with the current rules uh, of iCloud. And and yeah, it's a very interesting. I, I would like I would love to know the the story behind the behind the scenes, of course. It just seems weird. Like I remember, I don't know if it was the iOS eight or iOS nine, whichever keynote where they showed Visco as one of the example extensions, and then that still has not shown up. Like that just isn't a thing. We have no idea why. Psych. And and the whole idea of you know maybe iCloud Photos doesn't allow them to do something that they need to do. I can't think of what that might be. Like they they are applying edits to a photo. They can sync the history. They can sync the versions. They can do all of that because other apps are doing it. And if anyone has the resources to develop that, it's obviously Visco. Right. So I, it, it's just very bizarre to me that they're holding off on that. And initially I was saying, okay, they're not putting the extension out there because they want people to use their own sync service instead. They want to keep it all within the family. Fine. Except now they don't have a family. They don't have a sync service. Now they just have your little Visco profile. That's Instagram for minimalists. Right. And that's it. Like th- that doesn't solve the whole catalog editing side of things. So now I don't, I, now I just, I don't understand why they're not doing a photos extension. Like I don't get it. Yeah. I, I agree right now. The app is incomplete or it feels incomplete, uh, but we still may see an update at some point, uh, adding, adding back some of those features that we've lost. Yeah. And, uh, it, it may just seem, it, it may just be that they ran out of money for the sync service before the new extension was ready. And rather than announcing something that wasn't ready to ship, they decided to discontinue it first and hold off the announcement until they're fully ready to go. But wouldn't you have at least announced it? Like it just from a marketing perspective. But if there's it- if there's some technical issue that you still haven't solved, you you don't want to burn yourself by announcing something that you may never release. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's it's a complicated issue. Yeah. I just I thought Chris Gonzalez's tweet was perfect. You know, yeah. he says like <laughs> we know so many of you use and love this sync feature. That's why we're going to take it away with that explanation. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's very weird. I I don't know this. That was a perfect summary. <sighs> yeah. So Visco, I mean, please some clarity on the matter would be appreciated. And and it, I I wish that like I think the ideal way to have handled this, assuming that there is a photo extension, is to have just waited until September or whenever and been like, hey, Visco is now a photos extension. You can now edit raw files. It now syncs with iCloud Photos as the back end. As a consequence, there's no more native Visco sync service. But who cares? Because photo extension, because raw editing, all these cool things. Welcome to the new generation. Right. Instead, it's just they like took the worst part of that news and gave that to us with no hint that there's good news coming. So it's just a, a frustrating thing. And I, I'm concerned because it's not like there aren't other options for editing your photos. Right. It, 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 I guess it depends on how you look at it, right? Because you can think uh, they could have uh, announced it in September when the replacement is ready to go and sort of the bad news is offset or or masked by a wealth of good news to go with it. Yeah. That's one approach. The other approach is I don't want this piece of bad news to ruin the really great news that I have to announce. And I know if I release everything together... The media might focus on the bad news and ignore all the good ones. 
I don't know if that's the case here, though, because the bad news in the context of that particular good news is not really that bad. Like, it's not, it's bad news to us now because there is no good news. Try, but if, try saying that 10 times. Yeah, my head is hurting right now. <laughs> Sorry, that was very confusingly phrased. But you know what I mean, right? Like, if, if they had told us everything altogether, then the fact that their sync service is going away is not that bad. Like, it's not, it's being replaced by something that's clearly more scalable for them. It's clearly more sustainable. Yeah. And hell, it might also mean that they can do a photos extension, not just on iOS, but on the Mac, you know, something that people have been clamoring for since they uh, arrived, basically. I mean, it's something that I've been certainly wanting to see forever. Um, Whatever the explanation, I think there's something forcing their, the company's hand. Yeah, it and seems that I, way. I can't, I can't help but feel that way. And until we know more, uh, all we can do is speculate, uh, but, but yeah, there has to be something else going on here because it doesn't make sense. Uh, as things stand right now, it's just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So we wait with bated breath to see what uh, what the rest of the story is behind that. Hopefully we'll we'll find out in September. That wasn't so bad for follow-up. Yeah, we got like, through that. Almost 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's dig into uh, our main topic, which uh, is kind of a, I guess, a technique topic. I don't think it's a overly technical one it's more just how to shoot properly um we wanted to talk about uh, we wanted to talk about exposure uh and specifically the the like actual technical term exposure is in how much light is being let in um because there are a number of um techniques that you might have heard of and uh, just differing philosophies on what the best way to handle exposure is within the camera um, the goal being, of course, to give yourself the most leeway in uh, post-production to get the image that you're after. So, I don't know, uh, what's a good place to start here? Exposure is kind of a broad topic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I think the, the first, uh, it's kind of related to this, it's not exactly this, but the first thing to consider is whether you're, we're talking about shooting JPEG or RAW, because that changes everything, I would say. Uh, I'm going to assume that we're shooting RAW because if we're talking about adjusting images in post, that's what RAWs are for. Whereas JPEGs, you should try to get the most perfect version of the image in camera to the extent of your ability. With RAW, you have a little bit more leeway and that's what we're focusing on today. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. Yeah. I don't know if you wanted to add anything else before we get into it, Marius or Josh. Fire away. I'm actually like, I'm kind of like sitting here as, as a bit of an audience member because... Because I think that there's techniques here that Marius has already alluded to that I'm not, eh, I, I have no idea what they could possibly be other than, I, I shoot with a Sony sensor. So I feel like, you know, like I've got all this raw power when I put the photo into the computer that exposure is this like big moving target. Right. You know, like it doesn't, tr I, I don't know, to be honest, I feel like it doesn't truly matter. Well, it, um, it, it does. When I'm, I feel like uh, it does obviously, but it, I like, I feel like it doesn't because I can just change it later. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, the, it matters a lot less today than it used to because of the sophistication of modern sensors. But that's actually part of, um, part of what I wanted to talk about is some of the ways that modern sensors work actually allow you to shoot in ways that are a little counterintuitive. Um, but yes. actually makes more sense because of what uh, the technology is good at. So um, we should sort of dive into the the most commonly um, referred to piece of exposure um, technique, I guess, which is called ETTR uh, or expose to the right. 
um, which is referring to uh, if you have opened Lightroom and you're looking at an image histogram, which is that cool color graph that shows you intensity and whatever across the spectrum. Um, exposed to the right is a technique that suggests you should you should try and keep that graph shifted towards the brighter end of the spectrum, so the the right side of the histogram fundamentally. Exactly. And the key is to if if your histogram uh, goes from about thirty percent to about seventy percent of of light intensity, zero percent being absolute black and one hundred percent being absolute white. The 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 trick is to get that range that your picture lives in and shift it just so that your the brightest part of your image is just under a hundred percent without clipping because as we know uh, clipped highlights are one of the few things that you cannot recover in post uh, that's just the way digital sensors work and it's kind of the opposite way of how film used to work but on, on digital once your histogram clips over a hundred percent that part, that information is lost. You're never getting that detail back. And I'm talking about, for example, white clouds in the sky that that are really bright. If you don't adjust your exposure correctly, you're going to lose the the details in the clouds. You're going to lose it completely. And you're, you're never getting that back. This manifests in very visible ways. It's actually one of the easiest ways to tell a sort of amateur photographer from a more professional one because they will often have unintentionally clipped highlights um, that they just sort of leave in because they're not yet trained to spot them and try and avoid them. Um, and wh- right. what happens is, if, for instance, if you have clipped highlights in those clouds and you bring it into Lightroom and you're like, oh, that's fine, I'm just going to bring my you know highlight slider and uh, and adjust. And what you'll see is that you'll get kind of the the outline of the cloud back, but it'll just look like this strange cartoony thing that's been drawn back into the image, um, which looks bizarre and, and obviously ugly. And so in, in most cases, when you're seeing that, um, I tend to compensate the other way because it means, okay, look, clearly that information is gone. I may as well hide it <laughs> with a fair bit of, yeah, you know what I mean? Like it's just, Absolutely. so it, ETTR and other exposure techniques are generally, the, the goal is to make sure that the information that you, that's actually important to whatever image it is, uh, is preserved. So in the case of certain scenes, you may not actually care that the cloud highlights are blown because you're trying to make sure that your main subject is exposed properly. So in that case, you might expose for the subject. The sky is going to be a little bit blown, but who cares? Other times you really need the clouds. You really need that texture to be there. So you're going to shift the exposure down to make sure that your highlights are saved because you can recover some of the shadows or the shadows are not as important. So you don't care if they are crushed. Um, right. And it works the same way with, with shadows for the most part. If, if uh, they get to zero, the detail is, is gone. Like you just can't. Yeah, but it's, it's just a lot more difficult to get a shadow to clip below zero than it does to get a highlight clipped over 100. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, the, the problem with ETTR or exposed to the right is that it's a bit counterintuitive because people tend to think that even if you get an image that is a little bit underexposed, you just raise the shadows and uh, and it works very well. And you're making sure that you don't clip your highlights by underexposing slightly. That's true. The problem is that raising shadow detail in post has a penalty in the form of noise, whereas lowering excess excessive highlights that are not clipped, mind you, 
has a lower penalty because you don't introduce additional noise by lowering the highlights, whereas you do by raising the shadows. That's the, the, the thing to keep in mind is that if you have an image with the shadows already properly exposed, even if the highlights are a bit, are, are a bit high, the finished picture is going to look better than if you start off with an underexposed image and just raise it in, in post. And that's that's the main reason to to do this. Just to confuse things further. So that is true for the majority of cameras that you're going to be shooting with. However, if you happen to be shooting with certain Nikon cameras or Fuji cameras like I do, then you're actually taking advantage of what's called an ISO-less sensor, which means that from the camera's perspective, it is totally irrelevant whether you crank ISO while you're shooting or you raise those shadows in post. You're getting the same amount of noise. Typically, raising shadows in post gives you more noise uh, than otherwise. So when you're shooting with a Fuji camera, the actual best practice is to underexpose because you can raise those shadows much more cleanly than you can with most other sensors without introducing the amount of noise that you would if you had um, done it the normal way. Are you sure about that? Yes. Because at the end of the day, it's total light amount that matters. If you yep. let in more light in your exposure, the shadows are going to be cleaner than if you let in less light. So what you're talking about is it's true, but you're just adjusting one parameter. It doesn't matter to change your shutter speed or your ISO. You're saying you're getting the same result. Uh, you can shoot an image, for example, at ISO 1600 and a shutter speed of 1 to 50th of a second. If you raise ISO a step further and lower shutter speed, you're getting the same image, basically, with an ISO-less sensor. But this is not that's not what exposed to the right is. Exposed to the right is let more light in so that your your exposure will be cleaner because you won't have to race in post neither the ISO nor anything. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that when you do have an ISO-less sensor, there's another element that you have to keep in mind, which is that you you have more shadow recovery ability or cleaner shadow recover, recovery ability um, than you might otherwise have. Yeah. And it's just a, sure. it's just another thing to keep in mind. Um, it's, it's kind of cool. Like I, I know that for me, um, I, I kind of, um, I find myself, especially with landscapes doing the opposite of, uh, of ETTR in the sense that, well, no, actually, I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to expose for the highlights is, is probably right. a, a better way of putting it. I think that's more intuitive. I'm, I'm exposing for the highlights because I know that in post-production I can recover um, any lost shadow details or any underexposed shadow details um, without any concern. Whereas highlights, like you said, once they're gone, they're they're gone. So, yeah, yeah. The caveat with all this is that, yeah, of course, exposed to the right means to the right as much as possible without clipping the highlights. So in a way, it is exposing for the highlights. Yeah, basically. that's that's why I always found the term counterintuitive because it it makes you think that you're supposed to sort of shift your exposure brighter, but in fact, it's it tends to be the opposite of that. You're you're trying to make sure that you don't overexpose um, because that's how you you lose your highlights. So that's why I, typically yeah. when when we talk about this, I find myself describing it as just exposing for the highlights because that's a more um, it's a more understandable way of describing the technique. Yes. So yeah, like when you guys are talking about this, I kind of try to relate it to, you know, the layman's terms. Cause I, I mean, it's not that I had never heard of a clipped highlight, but I had, I don't know, I just didn't take it seriously. But anyway, I, I think a good way of, of relating to it, like when I got back from my trip, I took a look at all of these photos in, in Lightroom and, 
And I found like very often what I would do is I would shoot a, like an overexposed image and then like a mid range one to see how it would look. And then like an underexposed image. And I always found like all the underexposed images. I just, eh, I don't know. I'm not a fan of the overexposed images. I could like bring overexposed, just being brighter is kind of what I mean. Yeah. Um, I could like bring back the highlights a bit. And if there were clipped ones, then there were clipped ones and I could either like crop them out or I could blow it all to, you know, blow it all up anyway. Um, so anyway, I, I, you could just take a look at a few of the posts I've put on, onto the, my, my blog. And I feel like I prefer the ones where the whites are brighter as opposed right. to bringing up the shadows if that makes sense. So that's my way of relating to it, I guess. Um, I, I would tend to agree that, um, I would like to just blow it and make it super bright rather than be underexposed to start and then raise them up and have a whole bunch of noise. Yeah. There's definitely a very popular look, you know, that whole whitey, slightly overexposed look. It's very popular right now with a lot of, especially in travel photography and lifestyle photography and all of that. Uh, you do see it a lot. So, right. Like I, I, I try to like justify it with some sort of weird, you know, uh, uh, altruistic phrase. And I always say like, well, you know, the, the human eye is only, you can only look at one part of an image and enjoy it. But anyway, <laughs> I, I like the, the minimalist effect that the bright whites and the clipped highlights, even like, especially if you blow them all up, right. Um, rather than have like, like Mario said, like those outlines, they look like junk. Like, yeah, ugh, get rid of it. But if you can make it all super bright, then at the very least, like you help um, isolate specific parts of your photo, and it helps your the the viewer's eye to focus a bit more. But but yeah, anyway, that's that's the all I've really got to add. It's cool to put actual terminology right to the the thought process, at least that I had behind how I edited these photos. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is an aesthetic choice, and I think that the only um, thing to keep in mind is that um, if you are shooting so that the image out of the camera is looking that way, then you might inadvertently be limiting your amount of, of post-production leeway. And that's something that I would be uncomfortable. Right. I never, I try to always avoid yeah. that, to be honest with you. I never, ever try to be that overexposed in the camera. Yeah. And that's, that's just something that, I, you know, I want to put out there for, for listeners because that's, um, especially when it's something like, uh, something that's tied to a trend like this particular style, which may or may not remain, you know, popular for forever. I'm a believer, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like it too. I, I do, but but I'm just saying, like, if this happens to go away, and if you have to, or even let's say you get a client who uh, wants to license your image, but says, "Hey, I kind of want more detail in the sky in that image. Can you just re-edit it right, for me?" Right. If you can't go back to that raw and recover those highlights because you blew them out in the camera, then you're out of luck, right? Whereas at least if yeah. you are achieving these looks in post-production from a properly exposed image, then you always retain the flexibility to make that image look however you need it to. Uh, you know, and if it if it means for you that it's going to be manually, purposefully blowing out those highlights in post because you want to get that that certain look that's in vogue now. That's perfect, but you always have a copy of that raw file, which has all the data available for you to roll back and do a totally different take on it if the need arises at some point. So that's the that's the thing that I try and keep in mind is regardless of how I know that I want to edit the image, I want to make sure that I have the maximum amount of information available to me so that regardless of, of you know what I'm doing with it now, I have an archival copy that I can do different things with down the road. 
Yeah, exactly. It's all about maximizing the potential of your raw file to give you the most flexibility possible. Really. So, yep, nailed it. So, uh, like, where does where does crushed blacks come into this? Because you know, clearly, I like to blow the highlights. That's cool. But so, crushed blacks. Am I correct in saying that's when you um, like? There's a a little curve I'm thinking of specifically again in Lightroom where you just kind of lift the bottom end of it and all your blacks kind of, they're not black, black, they're, you know, like dark gray or like, that's what we're referring to, right? That's uh, raising the blacks, which is sort of a, a technique that is part of a lot of film like filters because typically a lot of film uh, has that slightly faded look to it. Or we, we sort of intuitively think because that's what all the filters do. Um, but crushed blacks are the equivalent of blown highlights. So we're talking about the darkest parts of the image that are so dark that the details are gone. So you just cannot recover those shadows. If you raise it up, you get the opposite of the clouds. Instead of, you know, stupid outlines around the clouds with no details, you'll get stupid outlines around, you know, a, a rock or whatever it is that's that's in that area of the image. So it's just, it's the equivalent um, for the dark side of the spectrum. So what you're talking about with the curves is just a, a different, it's, it's a technique for processing where you raise the right. black. Okay. because it aesthetically it gives a different um it gives a different look to the image but we're talking about the point where that curve slider does nothing to recover detail in those shadow areas ah okay exactly. right and the right. overall effect is very similar only one of them is unintentional versus the other and if you try to recover uh crushed blacks you get a similar like faded sort of look but of course there's nothing there there's no detail there. Yeah, there's so. just noise. And uh, Alvaro mentioned this earlier on, but it, it bears repeating that it is typically much harder to actually crush blacks in in the digital realm. It's it's harder to um, to underexpose that extremely. It's it's much easier yes. to blow highlights, and that's typically what people end up doing is is inadvertently blowing highlights, um, which is why that's kind of the thing that um, you'll usually hear people trying to suggest that you avoid. Um, because it's it's easier and it's more common, uh, whereas crushed blacks, you basically never have people warn you against it because it just it happens less frequently. And quite frankly, when it does happen, it tends to be in areas of the image that you really don't care about anyway. Um, so even if the black is crushed, it's it's not relevant to the overall look of the image. Um, you know, obviously depending on the severity, but I've just found that in certain ones of my photos, I will find that I have actually crushed some blacks, um, and I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's not relevant to the image that I'm making. So, oh well. Yeah, and this was a very problematic issue in the whole during the transition from analog to digital photography because it meant adjusting the way you metered your your scene and the way you shot to the exact opposite. Because back in the film days, you always exposed for the shadows, and it was nearly impossible to blow the highlights because of that the, the the very rich dynamic range that film has whereas digital sensors especially the early ones were notoriously bad at maintaining highlight detail it was super easy to blow the highlights so it, the initial reaction was like this is crap because uh, it doesn't let me shoot the way i know how to shoot and and that's why transitions are never easy but nowadays digital sensors are really really good at keeping both highlight detail and shadow detail. And that's why we're seeing that techniques like HDR, where you take one image slightly underexposed, another image uh, exposed normally, and another image slightly underexposed, and then you combine the three to create a richer overall picture. 
that maintains detail in both the shadows and the highlights. That's becoming less and less relevant and less and less important because today's sensors are already so good that you can just shoot normally and adjust in post and you're going to get very similar results. Uh, so this is all in a state of flux, like ev everything is changing constantly and right now the, the, um, the ETTR problem is still there, but it's becoming less of an issue, I would say, and it's only going to get better in the future. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point that you bring up about HDR because I've found the same. It's um, It used to be the case that if I wanted a lot of dynamic range, I would have to bracket shots. But now I'm finding uh, with the X-Pro2 that a lot of times I do have enough latitude within the single exposure to get the look that I'm after, which feels kind of magical. Um, and I know yeah. that you guys have the same experience, obviously, if not better with the, uh, with the Sony sensors that you're working with. It's just... It's cool how technology has evolved and it saves you a lot of post-production hassle, especially for those of us who were using HDR in a very um, non-ostentatious way where it's really not visible um, or it doesn't draw attention to itself that you've used um, high dynamic range in the image. It's just sort of a, a way to make sure that everything is is exposed the way you want. Um, and for, for subtle uses like that, I find that, um, yeah, modern sensors are are generally more than capable of of... Um, giving you what you need with just the one shot. And that feels like a huge time saver. And uh, I certainly appreciate it. I, I don't think I, I mean, for me, that's one of the hardest things about going back now to um, like the Olympus EM5 Mark II sensor. Ah, this was coming up. Good, good way to round it back. Adam, yeah, keep yeah, going. Yeah, circle back. I know, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I was going to say like, it comes with a dedicated HDR yeah. button, the EM5 Mark II. And I have never once used it because... Anyway, but I can see now, like, if their sensor is kind of, you know, it doesn't allow it, the, that level of exposure and detail and all that, I can see now why people might use it if they're on that camera. Anyway, fire off. Yeah, and that's, that's I mean, you said what I was going to say. I mean, that's, that's really, um, that's the one area that I feel most keenly, um, the, the transition between my current Fuji sensor and the older Olympus sensor is uh, dynamic range. I, I'm not that bothered by the resolution. Um, I can even deal with the noise for most of the scenarios that I'm shooting with. Again, keeping in mind that I, I try not to go over 3200 when I uh, when possible. Um, but dynamic range, I do feel. I, I do notice a very, um, a very evident difference between the amount of highlights I can recover from a Fuji file versus an Olympus file. And um, it feels like a, a noticeable step backwards. So for, for me, that's that's kind of one of the the main upgrades. And for you guys, that's going to be, of course, even more um, prominent, I imagine, because you've got a you know the, the Sony top of the line full frame sensor um, that you're working with. So I'm a little bit bitter on that because I do uh, appreciate the improved dynamic range, but the extra resolution means it needs more processing power from the machine to be able to handle those files. That's right. And in my experience, my Lightroom workflow has slowed considerably ever since I switched to the A7 II. The, the Olympus files were comparatively super light and I could just edit, breeze through them like with not a problem at all. Yeah. Whereas I, I do own a, a very old Mac, so full disclosure there, on a modern machine, I don't think it would be a problem. But... I definitely see a difference where if I'm editing pictures, especially panorama shots that can be 100 megapixels or more, it, it can definitely bring my Mac to its knees, and it does. So that's something to keep in mind. 
at least you're not demosaicing Xtrans files like us Fuji right. users are, because that takes right. even longer. Even though the resolution is smaller, um, for whatever reason, it just, especially in Lightroom, this is actually not so much a problem in other um, development environments, but Lightroom is not fast with Fuji files. <laughs> it just isn't. It's gotten a lot better at actually handling them. Um, but that's that's a whole separate topic, I think. Fuji and, and Lightroom have this sort of strained relationship and i'm discovering more and more that a lot of it is uh, is actually down to user error right um, because a lot of a lot of the ways in which we process images from typical bayer sensor arrays do not apply to xtrans files so if you're doing your sharpening the same way you're doing detail and all that stuff the same way that you would with a canon file or something like that in my case um, you're going to get really terrible results from the Fuji file, even though Lightroom itself is fully capable of getting you the result you're after, you just have to approach it differently. So, anyway, that's again separate topic. But but you mean user user intervention or just the Lightroom behind the scenes works differently on the Fuji file? Um, I mean user intervention because the the way that Lightroom's algorithms respond to Xtrans versus Bayer sensor arrays, they produce different results. So you have to you have to know. Um, and unfortunately, like a lot of times you'll see complaints about people getting this sort of watercolory look in their Fuji files or they'll get little worms in the details. Um, those are absolutely true. That, that That is something that happens, but it's something that happens because you're using certain processing techniques that um, are applicable to normal Bayer sensors. But for whatever reason, Lightroom uh, does not apply those same algorithms to X-Trans sensors in a pleasing way. So you just have to Sort right. of learn that and then know how to work around it. And yes, it sucks because other um, other environments don't seem to have this problem. You you just process images the way that you expect to have to, and you get the results that you need. Um, but it's not it's not a I don't know. It's not like Lightroom is incapable of handling Fuji files. Yeah, but I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there was an article on Mirror Lessons. Uh, I think it was this week, very recently on how to deal with uh, some sort of pattern that appears in certain images from the X-Pro2. I don't think I've seen that. Are we talking like moiré or some other pattern? It's not exactly moiré. It's like you can see the pattern, the sensor pattern on your pictures because it's it has, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It's the product of a reflection between the glass plate that covers the sensor and the sensor itself. So you're seeing your own pixels in the picture. I don't know how to... How else to put it? Is that like this the phase detect pixels that are visible in cameras that have a lot of those? Uh, no, no, not just the phase detect. Like all the here it is. Problem solving how to deal with the Fujifilm X Pro Two create artifacts. That's the title of the of the article. It's on Mirror Lessons, and it was written by Mathieu Gasquet, our our good friend Mathieu. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, but I'm just pasting it to you guys so that you can see what I'm talking about. Yeah, I guess I got to go read this, <laughs> see what's stuck in my in my images. But you can definitely see the, the sample images. You can totally see the array of pixels, the shape of the pixels on the image. And that is a reflection uh, that is, uh, the, the sensor itself is being reflected on the glass and it's appearing on the image. Very weird. Wow, that is so cool. Are you looking at it I right mean, it's, now? it's bad, but it's so cool. I've never, yeah, I'm just looking at it now. I've never seen this in my in my images. I'm going to go. I wanted to ask you because you've been shooting with it for a while now. And I was curious to see uh, if you had encountered this. And by the way, the it's just the X-Pro2 that, that has this uh, problem. The X-T1 
is almost non-existent. The XT1 uh, or XT2? XT1. The XT2, they haven't, they they haven't, haven't tested, it tested it. But it's the same sensor, so I would expect it to exhibit the same issue. Weird. Well. This is so cool. I'm going to have to dig in and see if, the, if I can reproduce this, because I have not seen this before. I'm, I'm usually looking at my photos up close, and I definitely don't recall seeing this, uh, right. this grid pattern. For, for our listeners to kind of get a better idea of what we're talking about. This usually happens when you get flare, veiling flare on, on one of your pictures. And in this case, in the case of the X-Pro2, the veiling flare has a very clear purple tint. And that purple color is the color of the sensor itself. That's what you're seeing on the image. The sensor is being reflected on the lens or on the on the glass that is covering covering the sensor. And is that part of that light is bouncing back onto the sensor again and, and it's getting registered in your picture. Right. So it seems like this is something that that is it kind of comes into play under specific shooting uh, shooting circumstances. It's not something that you're necessarily going to notice on all of your photos. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's it's only when you have like a very bright uh, light source just outside just outside of your framing that's when flaring typically occurs. And in this case, it all it takes is a very 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 slight adjustment to your composition. And it goes away completely. Huh. So that's basically the workaround that they that they're talking about in the article. The article itself is very interesting, and the the pictures, the examples also include how to work around it in post, like how to minimize the effect in post. Uh, so even if it happens to you, it does have. I mean, you have a way of making it less severe. Uh, but yeah, but this is definitely something to consider, and and. It seems like something that maybe should have been uh, detected by Fuji before releasing the camera because it's a bit of a, it can be a problem, I would say. I would think so. Yeah, it's it's strange. I Like I said, I'm going to have to dig in and see if I can reproduce this and, and uh, you know, see if I've, I've accidentally got it in some of my images and not noticed. Um, but it's it's interesting. In any event, the, um, the point is that... Uh, I sympathize with you, especially since I also have an eight-year-old computer. Uh, so yeah. that's one of the downsides of upgrading our kit these days is that uh, the files are heavier. And while it is, you know, obviously worth it because we can do lots more with them, it just means that it takes a lot longer to actually get through our editing cycle. How about you, Josh, with your super cool iMac Retina 5K? What, what about it? That you, you, you don't have to live with these problems that we have, right? Well, <laughs> uh, there's a cert, there's a definite difference for sure between Sony f- files and uh, Olympus files. But I think that that's also largely chalked up in my circumstance to JPEG versus RAW files. I haven't right. tried it JPEG to JPEG and RAW to RAW. But I, Olympus's RAW files are, um, I, I would argue they're utter garbage. So I, <laughs> I stay away from them. A lot. Um, they just fall apart and they're brutal. I don't know. I tried it once or twice. Didn't like it. So. And the issue is further complicated by the fact that their JPEGs are excellent. So you you really have very little reason to to shoot raw if you if you don't want to. Right. So like I editing Olympus files on the iMac is a breeze. It's quick. It's fast. Um, and then the Sony RAWs definitely take a little longer, no doubt about it. I, I still maintain that the um, the editing experience on the little MacBook, the little 12-inch, is actually better than the iMac just because of the the fast solid-state drive, the flash storage. Right. Um, but 
yeah, the, when it comes to exporting him. Wait a minute. Do you have a spinning disc in your iMac? No, I have a Fusion Drive. So oh. I guess, yeah, spinning disc is, yes, I do. Um, but I, I'm willing to bet that I could probably fix a lot of those problems by boosting the RAM and the iMac and all that kind of stuff too. So uh, yeah, there's, it would definitely doesn't bring anything to the, the iMac's knees. Like, There's no way that it's ready to die on me at any <laughs> given point. But uh but yeah, it, there's a definite difference between Sony's bigger RAW files and Olympus's smaller JPEGs. There you go. I don't know how we got onto that topic really, but we did, and now we covered it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's that's exposure in a nutshell. Um, it's it's something that uh, is not like we were saying. It's not as important today as it used to be. Um, but I I feel that it's still worth maintaining an awareness of because. If you again, if you're if you're aiming always to get yourself the most possible data for post production flexibility, then uh, you're in good shape. And honestly, most of the time that means exposing for the highlights because uh, that's just how digital sensors work. It's harder for them to uh, to deal with bright things. So yeah, and at at the end of the day, if you only take away one thing from all this conversation, I would like it to be that even though exposure is rarely a problem these days knowing how to make it work in your favor is still a massive advantage because it will unlock so much potential in your in in your images once you get to know how everything works all those choices that you can make to make sure in the end your image is going to be perfect that is always worth it i mean it it takes some yeah it takes some effort but it's always definitely worth it and it's especially important for, you know, we've got a lot of listeners who are working professionals, but we also have a bunch who are, you know, amateurs or um, enthusiasts and they're they're sort of just beginning their photographic journey. And they might not actually be shooting with cameras that have sensors that give them the the crazy flexibility that we were just talking about. So for those folks, it's especially important um, to keep this stuff in mind because it's a really easy way to significantly improve the photos that you're getting. Um, and especially the amount of of editing leeway that you can get. I'm thinking of like if you're shooting with a um, a point and shoot like the RX100 series that has an excellent sensor, but just given the the nature of uh, you know the, the physics of smaller sensors, um, that's one case where you can get a, a huge improvement in your images um, just by keeping this stuff in mind um, because you have less leeway in post otherwise to recover highlights. Yep. So. You know, it's it's something that is it feels tricky because it often means um, if you've got an ex- exposure compensation slider, you suddenly have to use that. Or in cases where you don't, then uh, you know you're switching to manual and you're you know actually adjusting settings. Um, but but it's worth learning and it's a it's a cool technique to uh, to keep in mind even as a goal to help you learn what various camera controls are doing. So yeah, go forth and shoot. <laughs> 